Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20 this morning. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like an armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helm of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak out about it as I should. Church, there are times where the attacks come and they come in a way that that sometimes is unrecognizable for for some time. And despite what, what good you may be doing, or how above reproach you take things and how you act. Your integrity will be questioned. Your faith will be tested. Uh, thoughts will be put into your mind by Satan that, that just aren't right to try to confuse you, to try to discourage you. You'll have people that you think are um, in your favor that, that may seem like they've just turned against you. These, these past few weeks, I've had all those things happen. I've had my integrity questioned at work despite doing the right things. I've had thoughts put in my head about my family, the care of my father. I've had doubts put in my mind about my marriage, which is extremely strong. And it's, it's tough. It's tough to, 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 to sometimes just turn and be like, Christ... I'm standing on you, but I feel overwhelmed. And so we have a choice. When we rise in the morning, we have a choice whether to put any armor on at all. And we have a choice that when we do put on armor, if we put on the armor of God or if we put on the armor of this world, we can go out and attack and deceive. We can go out and, 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 and talk poorly of others and slander and that's what the armor of this world looks like. We can, we can put no armor at all and try to hide and isolate ourselves. But we are called to battle. We are called to put on the armor of God. We are called to face those things knowing that victory is ours. So my prayer this morning is, is, is as David comes up to preach, that we hear that, that our faith be increased. Felix, Lincoln, Sally, we talked about, a lot, about that a lot this morning. We've been sent so that others can hear and their faith will be increased when they hear the word of God. We're here. We've been sent here this morning. Let's pray. 
Lord, Father, I thank you, thank you, thank you for our assurance of victory that is only through you. Lord, at times things so, seem so simple. You are the creator. You sent your son for our sins to be the sacrifice, having lived a perfect life here on this earth, that he rose again with the promise of returning. But while we are here, we are to go out and make disciples of the nations. And Lord, we get in the way. We see others on this earth, others that are your creation that seem like they are against us and they often are. They are not the enemy. Lord, give us us the ability to apply grace and mercy and love in times where it just seems impossible. Lord, when we are overwhelmed, let us rest in you knowing that that there is a battle going on. There There are things that just don't make sense. And in those times of confusion and discouragement and just feeling defeated, dear Lord, let us see you on your throne, reigning, ruling, and knowing that, that you are returning to take us home. We are exiles here on this earth, dear Lord, and people are going to question why we do things the way we do them. And in following you, it seems strange and foreign to others. Lord, this morning as we hear your word, let our faith be increased. Give us boldness to go out. Give us the words to speak to others, dear Lord, as you've commanded us to do. Be with David. Let him speak with with your authority, your boldness, and your word. And let us hear those same words that are from you and the only truth that we can stand on. We love you. We know that you love us. We thank you for all that you have done for us, all that you are doing for us, and all that you have in store for us. Through you, we know that we have victory. Remind us of that this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. It was midday, early November 2013. I had finished lunch and was in a, uh, a meeting right after lunch. And as I was, we were probably, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes into the lunch and of the meeting. And uh, I started getting this indigestion. I don't know if you deal with indigestion. It doesn't feel good. And so it just, I'm sitting there in this meeting, I'm talking and it's just like increasing. And I'm just like, this is hard for me to now concentrate on what we're talking about. It got to the point where I had to say, I'm so sorry. I've, I'm going to have to go. I'm, I'm struggling with some indigestion I need to get taken care of. I don't even know if I said that. I may have just said, I, I got to end this. In my, we're in my office, so I have to ask this person to leave. 
So I get in the car, I drive to CVS over here on the corner of Hamlin 153, and I get Tums and Rolaids and Pepto-Bismol and pretty much anything else I could think of. I think those are the three that I got. And by this time, I'm hurting so bad that I was like, I don't know if I can drive. Like, I've never, I've never had it that bad. And so I cross the street in my car and sit in the parking lot of the emergency room of Memorial Hospital just in case. And so I'm, if anybody saw me, I'm sitting in the parking lot of the emergency room at Memorial Hospital popping Tums and drinking Pepto-Bismol. And so I sit there for a while and it's, it's like, okay, it, I think it's subsiding. And so I, I head back to the church and I, and I, I finish out the day and uh, I, I get home, still just kind of bothering me, but, but it doesn't seem too very terrible. So I go to sleep that night. I slept through the night, got up the next day. Uh, probably about mid to late day, I start to feel it again. I'm like, oh my goodness, here we go. And so I'm popping the Toms, I'm drinking the, the Pepto-Bismol, and we had a church fellowship that night. Some of you were here, you will remember this. So we have a church fellowship that night, and I, by the time it starts, and there are just people all over in the cafe, back in the fellowship hall, by the time it starts, I'm, I'm hurting. So, you know, and off I go, and I'm trying to talk with people, and, and it, it's just not getting any better at all. And I'm, I'm starting to, I, know, I find myself, while I'm talking to people, I'm kind of starting to do this a little bit. And so now there's like, what's going on? And so I'm saying, oh, I just got this thing. And I kid you not. Want to talk about koinonia? I got people placing bets on what's wrong. <laughs> in front of my face. Like, I'm, I'm, that's what's happening. And so I go back, Karen's in the back, and I was like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dying here, you know? And I don't. You didn't come. What? I texted you. And you didn't come. Okay. Anyway, so by this point, it's like, I can't, I can't do this. So I go into the office. I am now leaning over the counter in the workroom of the office. And just about all I can get out is, uh, <laughs> it hurts so bad. And so all of the bets have been placed. And, uh, and so Heather Gillum comes in the door. Uh, she walks in and she looks at me and she goes, you probably need to go to the hospital. I think that's pancreatitis. I'm like, oh, and off we go to the hospital. And sure enough, it was pancreatitis. The whole time for like 24, 40 hours, I don't know how long it was, seemed like about a week and a half. I am dealing with symptoms that are not touching the issue. Right, I, I could take all the Tums, all the Pepto, and if it felt better, it's just because that pancreatitis was just like, I'm tired, I'm going to wait for a little while. And I'm coming back in a little while. So I'm, I'm sitting there fighting the wrong enemy, you know, with the wrong chills. Now, now that's, that's bad enough, I think. How much worse would it have been if Heather had come into that office and she had said, David, you have pancreatitis, you have to get to the hospital. And I say, you know what? You're right. I absolutely believe that you are correct. And I take another Tums and I drink some Pepto and I just keep on going. Am I getting a witness out there? Oh, <laughs> Heather. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anybody came close. And that honestly was not on my radar that I had anything so serious. I spent the next six days in the hospital ending up with a gallbladder coming out. So, 
Uh, if you get really bad indigestion, it's not always a heart attack. It's not always indigestion. Sometimes it's the pancreas. So, but how crazy would it have been if I had just kept on fighting something that wasn't wrong with me? If I kept on going after an enemy that wasn't the thing that was actually attacking me. And yet, I will tell you that, that, there, that I can read this passage that, that Ian read. I can go through that. I can hear, put on the armor of God. I can hear us talk about the enemy is the spiritual forces of evil. I can hear that there is no one around me who is wearing skin that is my enemy. And yet, what do I do? I still tend to get upset with people. I mean, it's not... It's not like it's out of the question that we get upset with somebody who does it, but, but I fight other people as if they are my enemy. And it's so easy for us to do. And so I think it's important for us to remind ourselves over and over and over again that we need to make sure we are not fighting the wrong enemy because we can try over and over and feel like I'm just going to fight with you until the bitter end and the bitter end will come and you have yet to deal with the real enemy. So on Friday night, we were um, some of the men came over. We were we were sitting around chatting at our house, and and um, and so we were talking about the direction of our culture, kind of what's happening. Sort of, the, I mean, the the absolute moral decline, just all of the issues that relate to to where our culture is now. And one of the things that we realized is that there is no middle ground anymore. When we're dealing with people and we're dealing with the culture and the situation, there's no middle ground. It's all battleground, right? We, so it's not, it's not civil discourse. It's like verbal civil war that is going on. And so we can't, we can't find this place where we, can, uh, where we can talk without getting defensive or even be so defensive up front that we don't talk at all. And the thing that I have found is that that, because we are so conditioned to that, because we have gone through this for so long and the sides have been drawn, that it starts to... It starts to penetrate my life. I don't know if it starts to penetrate yours. And I believe that it penetrates the church so that we are less, we're less tolerant of each other in disagreements that can, of, any, of any stripe. We just kind of tend to go to that place of being ready to fight on the, at the word go. But our conversation was really helpful because it reminded me of the nature of the fight. And it is a fight talked about it earlier in the prayer time. It is a fight, but it is not a fight against other people. It is a fight on behalf of other people. I want you to write that down because you need to remember that. It is not a fight against other people because the enemy is always going to tell you it is a fight against somebody else, but it really should be a fight on behalf of somebody else. A few weeks ago, we covered, we started this armor with the, talking about the, the belt of truth the belt of truth that holds everything together. It secures. It's foundational, right? We stand on truth. I know that doesn't fit the analogy of the belt, but it holds the, the righteousness in place. It gives us foundational. It's where the sword of the spirit, uh, the scabbard is, is attached to. It is that place, uh, that thing that goes around us that holds everything together. But how many times have you heard of Christians who will take that belt off and start beating somebody over the head with it? I mean, it's like, you know, when I was growing up, if you heard that, it meant your bottom was about to experience the belt. 
But a lot of times we take truth and we will beat somebody over the head with it. And we turn truth into a weapon. We start attacking people so that we can win a fight. That is not the purpose of truth. We're not there to force someone to believe something or to attack sinners for being sinners. The belt of truth should be used to set people free. The belt of truth is the gospel of peace. And John said in chapter 8, verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So this brings us to the shoes of verse 14. Good shoes make good athletes. Good shoes make good soldiers, right? You need to have the right footwear. Proper footwear makes all the difference in performance. And it's often the difference between success and failure. It's often the difference between winning and losing, being the victor and being defeated. So I was thinking about the people that we have in our congregation, and we've got, you know, Claire is a whitewater raft. Um, she's a nurse, but also a whitewater raft uh, guide. I don't think Claire's not here today, is she? Okay. All right. Ian, uh, he's into soccer, and, and we got dancers, and we got everybody. And I started thinking about the shoes that you would use. And, and I was thinking, like, you know, I don't, I don't know that Ian has any soccer teams that they have elected to have flip-flops as their, as their team shoes. Right? Because it just doesn't seem like that's going to be very efficient. You kick the ball, your shoe goes off, right? And so you've got to go chase the ball and go put your shoe on. I'm thinking about um, high heels are probably not good for what Claire does. You put high heels in a rubber raft, you're probably not going to have a very long trip, right? I mean, it's not going to be nearly as fun, and you will not have gotten your money's worth. But I was thinking also about, um, about running. Karen Levitt's a big runner, and you probably don't wear shoes like I'm wearing to run. Ballerinas probably don't use bedroom slippers. I can't imagine that that would be much better than for a a face plant. So those are important things for us to consider. When we're going to do something specifically, we need specific footwear to accommodate what it is that we're doing. So the shoes you wear determine how you perform, and so it's important to choose them rightly for the right occasion. So Paul describes the footwear for the armor is readiness for the gospel of peace say that again. What Paul talks about for armor is readiness of the gospel of peace. As I sat and just thought about it, that really doesn't make sense when you hear it, does it? It doesn't really make sense that if you're going, if you're, if you're talking about armor for war, you're talking about footwear for peace. How does this work? It's like, has Paul got this messed up? Is he mixed up here? And yet Paul, I think, has a good idea of the reality. I think Paul probably knows because he spent much of his life fighting what he thought was a battle against godliness, only later to find that the whole time he had been fighting the wrong enemy. He thought he was fighting for God, but he didn't understand the gospel of peace. And when he understood that it made total sense as he would look at those Roman soldiers and he'd start to put it together a picture of how he's going to communicate The battle, the nature of the battle, and the nature of the army to the church in Ephesus, and by extension, to all of us. So let's get back to the idea of warfare that he paints for us. So when an army goes into battle, when they're preparing to go into battle, they're going to think about the enemy, right? I mean, if they're wise, they're not just going to say, hey boys, grab your swords, let's go. They're going to sit down and they're going to plan. They're going to think about the enemy. They're going to try to get into the mind of the enemy. How does the enemy think? 
What does the enemy tend to do? And when he starts to do that, he starts to think, I don't want the enemy to fight me according to what he does and knows. I want to see if I can draw him out into a fight of my choosing. I want to be in control of the fight. And that's going to be through different tactics. But we have to know our enemy. And I think there are two major themes, two major schemes, actually, that he has for the church, especially in relation to what we're talking about in the culture. One is to get the church to cave. Is to get the church to cave. When we start feeling pressure from the outside, the enemy wants us to cave. He wants us to feel like, you know what, this, this, is, a, this is a hopeless battle. The tide of the culture has changed. You're moving in a direction. And so the only way you're going to survive in this world is to compromise. The only way you're going to survive is to win the battles you can. But overall, you just kind of have to let the, let the culture shape how you're going to be as a church. And he, end up making, he ends up making us puppets of his own agenda. Or secondly, to fight the culture. To go to the other extreme. We're not going to accommodate the culture. We're going to fight the culture. We're going to engage in war, in a battle, in a culture war. But we're going to do it the same way that the culture does it. And what we end up doing in that sense is we use the same weaponry of the enemy to fight on behalf of God. Sort of like what Paul was doing. He was sort of fighting culture war of his day. But he ended up using the wrong, the wrong weaponry. And the reality that we have to understand as the church is we can do neither. We cannot accommodate. And we also cannot engage in a culture war using the, enemy, the enemy's weapons. We are called to fight differently. We are called to fight counterintuitively even. So I want us to look at this verse again. Verse 15 of chapter 6. Oops, that's not it. I took it out. Stand with your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. That's the whole verse. That's the whole point. That deals with that whole gospel of peace. Stand with your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. So have your feet sandaled. Now, going back to what I was talking about earlier, that does not mean that you go to war with flip-flops. Like you're going to, with, with sandals. It's not like you're just going to run in and try to have a, a fight. Because if you're, if you're doing that, then you're going to f- slide all over the place. You're not going to be able to stand firm. You're not going to be on strong footing. This is not a noun. This is not talking about sandals. This is a verb. Have your feet sandaled. And when you look up sandal, when you start to think about what that is, having your feet sandaled means that they are strapped on. Right? The, the, this soldier would take the, they would be sandals, but they would go under the feet, and you've probably seen them, and then the leather straps would come around, all around the leg, all the way to the top, and then they would be securely fashioned. Those sandals are not going to move. And so this is the image that Paul is painting. Sandaled with readiness is one of tightly binding on the footwear so that you're ready to run. Not away, but forward. So that you're ready to stand firm. So that when you begin to use the other armor, your feet are not going to slip. You're not going to stumble because you are sandaled with the gospel of peace. It's about the right shoes put on the right way. And that gives us a picture of the nature of the battle. 
and that picture shapes our approach to it. So if we were to think, if we think, if our minds tend to go in the direction of thinking of culture wars, then we're going to be thinking about fighting other people. I mean, that's usually the picture I get. Honestly, years ago, I was in apologetics and worldviews, and, and my mind started to be sh- being shaped about engaging the culture, right? Because the culture is moving in a direction that is opposite of the gospel. And so many times I had that, that culture war in my mind, and I would begin to, talk, to look at people as the targets of my vast knowledge, Right? That I'm going to go in and I'm going to fight. I'm going to change them by taking the belt off and beating them with the truth. And so that is, it's a seek and destroy mission. It's a beat them down kind of mission. It's, a, it's getting them to bend to our will. And for those who think this way, who have been guilty of thinking the way that I have in the past, we have to remember that the results are similar to my pancreatitis issue. We can fight the symptom while ignoring the cause. I don't want to be clear. This is not to say that there's not a fight to be had. It's not to say that it's right to take a stand. It is important to take a stand. The church has to take a stand. Again, we cannot cave to anyone that is opposed to the gospel or teaching something contrary to the gospel. It's how we do it. It's how we engage. How do we make a difference? And so we can look at it as a seek and destroy mission, or we can look at it, I believe rightly, that the nature of the battle we're to fight is a rescue mission. We are to run to the battle, but it's with the gospel of peace, not to make war with other people. And let's be really, really honest. It's just easier to do it the other way. right? It it is easier for me to fight people than to fight for people that I look at as just downright wrong, or even as enemies. You know, as I look at people who are enemies of the gospel, they are opposed to the gospel. They are opposed to the church. They are opposed to the open expression of Christianity. It's just easier to look at them and go, that's what we got to get rid of. That's what we have to take down. But we have to consider this gospel of peace. What is the gospel of peace? Look with me, if you will, at Ephesians chapter 2. So we're in Ephesians chapter 6, back up to Ephesians chapter 2, looking at verses 13 to 17. Verse 13, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who were far have been brought near. So in Christ Jesus, you who were far away, you who were long, far away from the gospel, far from being uh, brought into heaven, you were far away. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in Christ Jesus and by the blood of Christ Jesus, bookends that verse. And in the middle, you were brought in by Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is the battle belongs to the Lord. It is that because of what Christ has done, the battle has been won, right? He's already won the the victory, defeating the enemy through obedience, bringing us near to God through sacrifice. Now hold your place there. I want you to jump over to Hebrews chapter 10 and see what the writer of Hebrews says in regards to that. In verse 11, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifice 
time after time, which can never take away sin. But this man, who is Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He got the job finished, he completed, and he sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Verse 14, for by one offering he has, protect, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies about this. He says, uh, for, for after that, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on my on their minds that is found in Jeremiah 31 verse 17 and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts now where there is forgiveness of sin there is no longer an offering for sin Jesus has done it that is the gospel that Jesus has done the work it is complete and if you are in Christ your sins will never be held against you that's the good news That's what lends to this gospel of peace that those who are far off need to hear. Let's go back to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he is our peace. We're talking about the gospel of peace. He is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Who are the two groups? It's the Jews and the Gentiles. It's those who had the law, those who did not have the law. And so Christ has made out of two groups, one who was living by the law and one who didn't have the law, he makes them one group. This becomes the church. We're all a part of the Gentile side of those things, right? So he made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility, which is the grounds for war. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from two, resulting in peace. Jesus has brought peace. He did this so he might reconcile both to God and in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those of you who were near. I love when he says he did this so that he could reconcile both to God's. Because what we see here is we see Jesus in his work. He has reconciled God to man and man to man. That obliterates any reason and way for us to have the kind of battle that we have against each other. We have been reconciled to God. Our sin has been forgiven. It is done. It is finished. It is complete. We can rest in that. Christ sitting down at the right hand of the Father, having finished all of His work. This is what makes this a rescue mission. It is always being ready to use that good news against the enemy. We're fighting against the enemy, but we're fighting for those who are far off. And when we do this, we see the gospel in action. We see the gospel protecting those who are vulnerable to be taken captive by the enemy. We see the gospel protecting those, and that can be uh, brothers and sisters who are weak in the faith. It can be our children. So one thing that we know that that the enemy that engages the culture and and is Lord over the culture, wants to use the culture to infiltrate our very families and destroy from within. 
to destroy families by turning them against the truth. And if he possibly can, he will do that within the Christian family. And when we stand in the gospel, when we proclaim the gospel, when, when we teach the gospel in our households, when we, when we deal with our children as they have to go into the world and are confronted with all sorts of things that the enemy wants to use to draw them away, it is the gospel that is our, our safety. It is the gospel that is our weaponry. Where we can speak peace into their lives even as they are living in a world of chaos. Those who are near But the gospel also steals away even the most hardened sinner from the grip of the enemy as as we declare it, as we declare the gospel. It was one of the things we talked about on uh, Friday night, and uh, and Denny brought up Rosaria Butterfeld. If you know anything about her, she was one of the most hardened, feminist, leftist, whatever title you want to put on, she puts on herself. She goes, I am the reason that many of you are dealing with the world you're dealing with. She was a leading uh, person in writing, she was an English professor, uh, a liberal English professor in a liberal college, and she said, I wrote a lot of the, 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 like the manuals, essentially, for the direction the culture's going. And yet, there was one pastor and his wife who welcomed her into their family, and they just started loving her. They did not take the belt out and start beating her over the head. What happens when somebody brings a belt out and starts beating you over the head? What are you going to do? Oh, would you please do that some more because that sounds right. Or are you going to run away from the belt? I did that once when I was growing up. One of the first times my dad brought the belt out, I ran. It didn't work out well for me then. You don't take the belt of truth out and start beating them. They loved them. And what they did was they loved her with the gospel and they just kept telling her the truth over and over and over. And she who was so hardened was softened by the gospel and given a new life. Man, she is on fire for Jesus. This is what happens when you get to know Christ. But there are so many people who do not yet know that Christ has won the victory. I read of a guy. He was a, um, a Japanese um, intelligence officer in World War II. His name was Hiru Onoda. And he had been, close to the beginning of the war, he had been dropped off on one of the Philippine islands. And his responsibility, his command, was to do everything you can using guerrilla warfare to thwart the enemy, which would have been the United States and the Allies. And he did that. And he, he did that very, very well. Well, the end of the war came, but he didn't know it. And so he kept fighting. He kept doing his job. So they began to drop leaflets on the islands saying, the war is over, it's time to come out. Well, he found those, some of the other men who were with him, and said, well, this is just the enemy trying to draw us out. (laughs) If we come out, they're going to kill us. So they just kept hiding. Time passed. They dropped some more leaflets that included their family's pictures and letters from their family that said the war is over. And now they're thinking, man, they're getting really smart. And kept on fighting and kept on fighting. Eventually, there was a, some Japanese explorer who, you know, it had been known that he was still missing. He was still out there somewhere. And he's like, I'm going to find him. And so he goes looking for him. He finds him. 
But Hiro was like, there's no way I'm coming out. Not until I have orders. I said I would not stop until I had orders to stop. So he goes back. He tells him he's found him. He, uh, he gets, they find his original captain who wrote the orders and came after him and brought it to him and said, you are now relieved. The war is over. It's time to give up and come back to real life. This happened on March the 11th. 1974, 29 years after the war was over, Hiru handed his sword over to Filipino President Ferdinand Marcos. 29 years after hostility was over, and he didn't understand that the battle was over. He didn't understand that it was time to surrender. And when he surrendered, if you follow the rest of his life, he actually came back and had a wonderful life until the day he died. He had life like he had never known it before. We have so many people in our world who don't know the battle is won, who don't know that there's life to be had. Jesus has won the victory, and they're fighting as hard as they can. And as our job, our responsibility, our our joy to be able to go on a rescue mission, to build relationships with people in order to let them know that the war is over. Christ has won the victory. Are your feet sandaled up with the readiness for the gospel of peace? Peter wrote in chapter 3, verse 15 of First Peter, in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So the, the implication with that verse is that the way you're living your life is going to prompt questions. Right? That's, that's, the way, that's what he says. He says you're going to live your life in such a way when Christ comes in with such joy and intentionality. That even when it gets hard, and it will get hard, even when you're going through struggles and difficulties, you're going to carry yourself in such a way that it, it is a different, it is a contrast for those who have no hope. Right? If I'm living with hope, then even if I have to go through death, even if I have to go through challenges, even if I lose everything, if Christ is who He said He is, and if He has changed my life, something's going to look different, and that's going to be weird. Not weird bad, but weird, I want some of that. And so, hey, how is it that you're dealing with this crisis in your life with such grace? I admire you so much for how much grace that you have. What a great opportunity to say, don't admire me, but admire Jesus who is in me and giving me all of this hope. Because when I'm at my worst, the grace of Jesus shows up and he changes things. And because of that, I have hope. Man, that's almost as simple as it gets. But that's the, that's the truth. It is giving the glory to Jesus and saying, He has changed me. It's not me. It's not something I've been able to do. I would fall apart. I would absolutely fall apart. And to be honest with you, it's okay to fall apart, but you don't fall apart as those who have no hope. You get back up and you stand up and you say, Jesus is Lord. He has this. That's what we have the opportunity to do. How do we go about it? Look at verse 16. Do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you're accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. 
So we do it with gentleness. We do it with reverence. We do it with a clear conscience. The goal of putting on the armor is to stand firm. It means to stand firm and not be knocked down. But it does not, of course, mean to knock someone else down. So when we do that, we can run with the gospel. When there is someone who is, at, who is hurting, we can run to them with the gospel. When there's somebody who is in the depths of despair, we can run to them with the gospel. Right? When there's somebody who is doubting or who is wondering, is there really a God? We can run to them with the gospel. When there's any situation that we see, we can be on guard, ready for battle, not to go attack them, but to go attack the enemy's uh, work in their life and give them the gospel of peace. Share with them the gospel of peace. This is best done in relationship. Right? And that's, that's the thing. This is best done in relationship. I am, I am all for if somebody feels called to go stand on a corner and preach the gospel. I'm all for that. I'm all for the, the opportunities that we get to share the gospel with people we don't know on the street. That is wonderful. That is all good. All of the above. But it is best done in relationship. Because the Great Commission says, go into all the world and make disciples. Making disciples tends to take time and effort. That is usually something that takes time. It takes investment. So the implication is, for the most part, and the best thing is for you to be able to invest in people's lives with the gospel over and over as they begin to walk more strongly uh, and uh, consistently with Jesus. So are, are you sandaled? with the gospel of peace? Are you aware of it? Have you spent time in the word? Do you know? Have you been changed by the gospel of peace? And then are you putting yourself in opportunities where you can begin to pour into people over time consistently? Are you putting yourself in situations where you're around lost people who are still held captive by the enemy, not understanding that the war has already been won? It's already over. One of the things that we do, we are trying to do, we, our goal is to establish more and more ministry opportunities where we are around people who don't know Jesus. And it's based on our, based on our interest. Again, we talk about all the time, soccer, jet ski, dancing. Well, just, I could go through and just name all the, the ways in which people are interacting with people who don't know Jesus. How can we make those? How can we know how the enemy works and develop a strategy that can infiltrate, not to tell them what they don't want to hear or not to beat something over their head, but to get in close enough where we can say, hey, do you know what? The war's over. You don't have to be held captive anymore. There is freedom. There is peace. You can know the truth and the truth will set you free. Like that is the work of the battle that we are engaging in. That is why we need the armor of God. So if you are not, sandal up, strap it on, Stand firm and get in the battle for those who need to know that Jesus is Lord and that they have been bought with a price if they trust in Christ as Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, I know that it is one thing to talk about it on a Sunday morning and it is another thing to live it on a Monday morning. I am all too familiar with the enemy's strategy to also make us fearful and doubtful, Lord. We don't don't want the trouble that can come with that. 
we don't want that second part of 1 Peter that says when they accuse you, when they come at you. And I know that the enemy uses that strategy in my life and in others' lives to keep us quiet, to keep us unengaged, to keep us on the periphery, to, to engage in the small talk and move on. Lord God, I pray that this morning that what we will understand as we walk out of here is that we have all the power of the Godhead at our disposal, that we are vessels to be overwhelmed by and used by the very Spirit of God to make a difference in the world around us. Lord, help us to, God, just obliterate the fear and the timidity that we often face, Lord. Help us to see the battlefield as it is. Help us to see that the enemy has so many people under his spell, under his power, which he really has none, but he he certainly has a way with us. Lord, I pray that we would be soldiers, not out to attack people, but out to rescue people. May that be done in us because of what Christ has done, because of the hope that we have and the hope that they can have in Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand as our worship team comes up. I would encourage you not only to think on these things and to respond as the Lord is speaking to you, but also to prepare your hearts as we remember and engage in communion.